0: In Adam McKay's 2021 film Don't Look Up, a pair of astronomers played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence discover a comet will collide with Earth in approximately six months. The film follows the pair along with a NASA official played by Rob Morgan as they attempt to alert the president, the media, anyone who will listen really, that the world will end if the government doesn't act. If that sounds familiar, it's because McKay and journalist David Sirota, who co-wrote the story, have stated in interviews that the film is really about climate change. Here's wrote on the podcast, Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar.
1: The idea of the movie is basically to, to try to address the climate crisis or to, to raise questions about it. It's hard to do it specifically on the nose uh, with the climate crisis. It, it might be a better idea or a good idea to do an allegory. And the allegory is a comet is headed towards Earth and two scientists are on a media tour, essentially, to try to warn the world and to try to prompt the government to act uh, in defense of the planet.
0: Reaction to the film has been divided, however, with on one hand, critics panning the film for its nihilistic tone and lack of nuance, and on the other, activists and climate scientists praising the film for making an action by the government and media front and center in the climate, um, comet discussion? But what do sociologists think? Disaster, after all, is by definition a social event in which vulnerable communities face disruption from geological, atmospheric, technological, and other forces. Fair warning, if you enjoyed Don't Look Up, this episode may change your mind about some things. Today, sociology is going to ruin Don't Look Up. With disasters consisting of disruption of social structures, you can imagine sociologists have a lot to say about the topic. But a lot of media coverage focuses on the economic. How much are climate-related disasters going to cost? Or the political? What is Congress or the president doing to rebuild infrastructure? There's even discussion about how climate change affects national security. These may be important discussions, and they certainly intersect with what sociologists study. But what about civil society or the communities undergoing these drastic changes? And when we talk about mitigating or even halting climate change, it's important to talk about what's happening at the local, regional and state level, as well as the global level. For the most part, we only see what's happening with the federal government in Don't Look Up. You may already see why this particular choice may bother sociologists, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's bring in a sociologist who actually works on the topic.
1: Hi, uh, my name is Nick Jennis. I'm an a associate professor of sociology at Chico State University in California. And um, yeah, my background is in urban environmental geography, sociology, uh, and also a background in uh, disaster studies.
0: Great. And that fits perfectly with what we're talking about, <laughs> or maybe it doesn't, depending on how you feel about the film. So don't look up as build as a comedy, but I don't really want to get in the conversation about whether it's funny or not because comedy is so subjective and that's its own discussion, right? But I'm curious as a sociologist who works in the area of environmental justice and disaster, what were your impressions? Yeah, so
1: uh, I put off watching it for a while, I, you know, the, it blew up on Twitter and everywhere else in the sort of climate, environmental leftist communities that I'm sort of networked into. Uh, and I just kind of put it off. wasn't sure I wanted to, to watch it because of, you know, the Hollywood film. But I do have a real interest and love of sort of disaster films. So, you know, when I got the opportunity to talk with you, I said, OK, I'll sit down and watch it and be really mindful and take notes. And I ended up taking copious amounts of notes and I had a lot of thoughts. And it turns out that I, I thought it was a pretty good disaster film, but a very poor climate change film. And I don't really know why it was billed as such. Uh, so I have a lot to say about this its sort of shortcomings and how it fails, you know, from a perspective of sort of a an urban geographer and a disasterologist and someone who's really interested in climate change and decarbonization.
0: Yeah. Um, part of me was kind of hoping that you'd like it. So it'd be more of an interesting discussion because I did not like it. But um... <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say that on that
1: point, I thought, well, am I something wrong with my perspective? Because and, oh, everybody else seems to love it. I'm really not liking it for what it's supposed to be. And then I you know, was looking at some of your tweets. and I was like, oh, yeah, somebody else doesn't like it either. And it turns out it's you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no, you did your research. Yeah, no, I the, decided to do this episode because I kind of went off on social media. And one of my friends responded, sociology ruins everything. And exactly. <laughs> In this case, it, it actually did. Yeah. And yeah, I wanted to talk about what you referenced right off the bat. So David Sirota, I'm sure you're familiar with him, he's a journalist. Mm -hmm. He came up with the the story for the film with the director and has stated that it's an allegory about climate change. But this for me highlights one of the big misunderstandings about climate change and disaster, that climate change is the sole cause of disaster, much like a comet hitting the earth, right? Mm -hmm. By making that comparison, I'm thinking the film glosses over a lot of human agency and climate related disasters. Uh, there are easy comparisons, are like our actions since industrialization have led to a changing climate. And as far as I know, we can't create a comet, right? right. <laughs> but it's more subtle than that. Climate change has been tied to more extreme weather events, but also, like in the case of flooding, upstream development has taken away plants and soil that would soak up rain and prevent flooding downstream where people live. That's just one example. Do you think that the loss of nuance does a disservice when we're discussing the effects of climate change?
1: Absolutely. As 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 an uh, as an academic, you know, one way to read the film in a sort of more positive generative uh, light would just to be think of it as a, a form of propaganda, you know, like as, in a sort of neutral sense of that word. I know that word's very loaded, but as a way to sort of get the message out, right? But I think that that point is, we're past that now. And I think that really, you know, the people going to be watching it are people who already have some interest in it. And so I think that the nuance that's missed is is critical. And even as a form of propaganda, it falls flat because it's a hot mess of causation, that it's just a sort of a vomits out all the different kinds of things that could be leading to the predicaments that we're in, particularly here in the United States, but in terms of global climate change. So I don't think it works even in, in this sort of light sense of trying to just rile some people up in terms of getting them to think about climate change. And it doesn't work in the sense of helping people understand both what's at stake, but also the sort of wicked problem that climate change is and why it's different than a comet, and why that we might want to make those distinctions and and that they matter. And we should hold on to some of those, those nuances. So I have a lot more I could say on
0: that. Uh, no, no, it's it's, it's great. I'm, I was thinking a lot about, I know that you've written this in your blog, this idea of there's no such thing as a natural disaster, right? Disaster by definition is a social event. Like if a tree falls in the woods, doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't do anything, that's not a disaster, right? Yeah. But if, you know, a tree falls on a house, or a community. I guess it would have to be a community to be a disaster. But a wildfire decimates a community. That's a disaster. And I'm thinking of where a comet kind of falls into that. It's catastrophic. It's not a disaster. It's the elimination of all human life. And to me, that's where this allegory falls short as you're creating an entirely different scenario, but trying to make this point about climate change and they don't add
1: up. Exactly. And and that's where I think the biggest miss of the film rests on that metaphor. And metaphors can be very important, especially in filmmaking and storytelling. But uh, my dissertation work, my thought was to compare disasters that appear to come to us like a hurricane. It's this agent from nature that's out there and it ravages human settlements and, and cities. And people usually think of those as classic natural disaster, right? The thing that comes to us. And then I compared that to disasters that appear to come from us. So I looked at the decimation and the destruction of salmon habitats in the Pacific Northwest and around Seattle. And so the classic humans are destroying nature. And interesting enough, and what I found in my work is that it was, as you said, there is no such thing as a natural disaster. What we're really looking at are the socio-political economic structures and practices and decisions that create vulnerability, inequality along race, class, geography, all that kind of stuff. Now, what happens, I think, in a film like this and that what people, if they even take the there's no such thing as disaster, there's a there's a way that you can um, actually go too far in the social constructivist side. That is, nature doesn't matter. Like the agent of disaster, the agent of chaos, if you will, is is actually just human society and that the particulars of, say, a hurricane or an earthquake or a comet or climate change, They don't really matter because at the end of the day, we know that poor people, oppressed minorities, people living in precarious places, they're the ones who suffer the most, the rich are able to insulate often, and so on and so forth. We kind of just make it a completely social story. So interesting enough, even though I wrote in my dissertation that the things that we should focus in on to study disasters and to mitigate them are looking at, say, capitalist urbanization, how we use and deploy technology, governance, and how we socially organize from non-state actors. But we need to really think of the actual agents that we're dealing with are different, right? So the way that we handle hurricane preparedness or to understand wetland ecology of Southeast Louisiana is gonna be different than thinking about salmon. That's gonna be different than a nuclear reactor or a coal plant, or in this case, a comet, right? A comet is not climate change because climate change is us, it's humans. It's capitalism, it's other ways of human uh, agency. So I think that the film, because it just collapses it and tries to make that easy metaphor between the comet and humans as one and the same, it, it really doesn't work, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think if they'd made it about all the space junk that's accumulated above the earth is starting to crash down and kill everyone. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, that would work. Um,
1: right, yeah, exactly. And and, and and when I got done with the film, I was like, this should have just been a, a sort of allegory or metaphor about COVID-19, because COVID-19 is it has that agent that is just outside of us that comes into us, but it's also really exposing how our political, economic, technological systems can succeed or fail depending on where you are on earth and, and what kind of society you live in. And, and, and the film kind of does explore that actually quite well in that way, but trying to force it into thinking about this cataclysm because literally like you said, it's the end of the world. And climate change may or may not be the end of the world. We don't know at, at some point in the future, but it's not the same kind of cataclysmic event that a comet or an earthquake or something like that, right? Or or even like an alien invasion. Because sometimes those are also interesting ways to think about, you know, how would humans and you know deal with that kind of existential calamity. Yeah. So that so the the metaphor it, 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 that's why I said it's a good disaster movie, but a terrible climate movie.
0: Well the film absolutely nails is the current state of science communication. Mm. It's definitely something that sociologists, especially public sociologists, struggle with how to make sometimes complicated concepts understandable to the public. In the case of the film, and there's one scene where I think it's towards the end of the film where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is being asked about the comet, and he's talking about data, and, and then finally just screams, there's a comet heading towards Earth, we're all going to die, yeah. right? <laughs> Obviously, with climate change, it's far more complicated. So you've talked a little about your work and how it involves capitalism shaping ecological crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we get the message across that this economic system that's so thoroughly embedded in our lives is in desperate need of a change? how do sociologists do that?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a huge one Um, in in a sense that I think that's what makes climate change, unfortunately, the paradigm of the wicked problem because nobody really wants hurricanes just devastating a city, right? No one's clamoring for that generally. Nobody is looking forward to an earthquake or a comet and, and all these other things. But people are looking for energy. People are looking for whether they're using it as a use value to heat their home, to play video games, whether they're corporations looking at it to to harness that into exchange value to make commodities, right? There's this this amazing need and desire for all different reasons, historical and contemporary, that people want to use energy, right? And we've gone through different energy revolutions through human history. Um, And so we happen to be in one that's having climate, global climate repercussions, and also localized pollution and, and inequality and all sorts of uh, horrible things happening at sites of extraction and distribution. But at the same time, there's no denying that fossil fuels have also allowed the expansion of art, science, technology, the kind of lives that millions to billions of people now live, right? We're at the stage of billions of people harnessing these kinds of uh, fuels to do interesting things, Right. And so how do you make a film about that? Well, I think that Hollywood can't make a film about that. I think that even like documentaries have a hard time because it's, one, not easy to accept that the economy, whether you're talking about a socialist country or a capitalist country, using and harnessing fossil fuels and then the damage that they cause, how do you change that, right? Both from a social justice perspective, but also recognizing that, there is this desire and need for energy of some kind to do things for humans. I think it's hard to communicate that. And so even as a form of sort of science communication, as a narrative to get people to think about doing actual changes to decarbonize or to boost certain kinds of technologies or to look at certain kinds of, you know, environmental, social justice policies and things like that. The the narratives, I think we're stuck with the, In the film, it was just kind of ridiculous, they kept saying it was peer reviewed, it was peer reviewed. And I was just like, this becomes laughable that the filmmakers really thought that science communication is or should be just sort of like backing it up by this idea that it was peer reviewed and therefore we should listen to it. We see the same problem with the pandemic, just trust the scientists, right? So from a sociological perspective, narrative and communities of trust. And I'm thinking here of Carrie Norgaard's work on communities of denial, right? And how that small subgroups of people that you trust that each person is sort of embedded within are most of the places that denial or acceptance of certain kinds of social and objective realities are mediated through what we come to believe is true and false about the world. Right. And so there's kind of like these communities of practice and, This is both an interesting way to inject new kinds of narratives into the sort of more informal networks to see if people might change their behavior or ideas, right? Sometimes it takes like your cousin who, you know, starts doing something different and then it influences the family to do another thing who's also embedded in the church, like is at the work and so on and so forth. We've also seen how that in the Trump years can also reinforce other kinds of right-wing or nefarious kinds of beliefs as well. Same with anti-vaccine. So the idea of this mass communication is very hard, obviously, you know, in a sort of post-truth era that we supposedly or very much seem like we're living in. No one's cracked the code, right, on how to communicate climate change. Because, you know, David Roberts is always talking about it's not the narrative that has the power, it's political power. Right. And the left has really bought into the idea that it's the discourse, and has abandoned in some ways, like Lee Phillips keeps reminding people, is that it's political movements and political power, whether they're through the electoral process or through social movements. That's how you can take narrative and shape policy and actual like structures of practice around fossil fuels and other kinds of things. And I think you know, if the left gets caught in the discourse and the narrative arena, then we're going to just constantly be making movies like this. That's just simply just another narrative soup.
0: Yeah, I wasn't asking you to personally solve science communications problems. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a task. Yeah, no, I I work with, um, in my public
1: sociology classes, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do you communicate sociology? And I think this is where science communication, where people think, well, it's the data, right? The data is just going to like, you look here, look at the chart. You know, in sociology, we try to work on narrative and to give the story about it. But even that's really difficult, right to get into people right and so that's where I think that you know the idea of political power through the state or through social movements in conjunction working to affect change, maybe that's a more lucrative way to think about how narratives change.
0: There's also the issue that a lot of work that sociologists do or anyone involved in climate sciences it ends up behind a paywall in a journal that Mm -hmm. most people don't have access to. And some of these articles, even if you did have access to them, it would be hard to read something by an ecologist. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, obviously, not only to just open that content to the public, but also translate it. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I think that, yeah, I think today we have between, you know, TikTok and YouTube and the blogs that are left over and Twitter and things like that, There are media, there are people who are reading and engaging with the academic work and translating that and writing books. I'm thinking of like Emma Maris and and they have taken the debates about the critiques of wilderness from William Cronin from like 20, 30 years ago. And she's eloquently writing pieces about the limits of the wilderness idea today. It's amazing to watch that thing that was just like an academic conference that became an academic book 20, 30 years ago is now something that, someone millions of people are reading or have access to some of those ideas that were germinated in these little closed communities these academic communities so there are people doing that and i guess it's like what kind of communication there's so much of it these days as you know
0: like podcasts (laughs) yeah Uh, uh, another thing that bothered me about the film is it indicates that the fate of the earth lies in the hands of three institutions the the media the federal government not not congress congress isn't really mentioned in the film Mm -hmm. and corporations reality though when it comes to climate change not killer comets action at the state level like in california or through you write a lot about bioregionalism organized around areas like um, Cascadia Mm -hmm. plays a big role in our response to climate, not only in setting forth standards, but also creating new political and economic systems to organize around, for better or worse, as your work details. Do we need to be talking more about local and regional governments than getting the quote unquote right person elected in the next presidential election? Because the film certainly says that it's the executive branch, right? That's the issue Uh, and the media
1: yeah for a while now we've been stuck in the idea that the president is the most powerful person in the world, which in many ways they are us president that is for those who are not uh, you know in the United States so anyways yes the nation state for hundreds of years now has been the bedrock of the idea of sovereign political action that in an interconnected global nation state system right every nation state working within their borders on interests of national concern and climate change has come up as a truly global, if not planetary problem, but we're still kind of stuck in the the framework of the nation state global system, right? One nation at a time doing what they want. And there of course, the whole system's antagonistic because all nation states are in, in a sense against one another and only form alliances of convenience and necessity. So my work and, and work of others has been really, you know, thinking about in the sort of neoliberalized era from the 1980s onward. Um, not only did we have explosion of globalization, we also had the reterritorialization of localization and regionalization. So this kind of double movement that the world began to globalize, but at the same time, locations capitalism became more embedded in, reliant upon local and regional governance to sort of organize the global supply chains across the world, to sort of erase the nation state borders. And so, you know, many people argue that the nation state, the power has been declining for about 40 years, and that the global has sort of transcended it as the, the political scale at the same time that the local and the regional has also become very important. And so our my work with Karina McKendree, we've been looking at this sort of re-territorialization around carbon commodity chains that have to go from the sites of extraction in the interior of North America, Alberta tar sands, the coal fields of Wyoming and Montana, they actually have to transport that through space, through territory, parcelized sub-national territories of what they call the sort of thin green line, California, Oregon, and Washington, British Columbia. That's where the export terminals are to get that material all the way over to China and other users in the developing world. So there's been a lot of resistance along these commodity chains in North America, in Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, of course, you know the Dakota Access Pipeline, and so on and so forth, where regional and city-based actors are sort of throwing wrenches into these commodity chains, into some of these biggest, most powerful sort of fossil fuel corporations from getting their product to market and to shut down the export terminals. And they're doing this not just, they're not really, some of them it's direct action activism. Often a lot of it, it's also states prohibiting them. It's the Lumie Nation tribe that in, in Washington at, that was able to stop the Cherry Point by taking it to the Army Corps of Engineers. And by, based on treaty rights, uh, it was overturned. So the export terminal and, and, and at Cherry Point, Washington was stopped. And what this suggests is that it's not that we need to find the local solutions because I think that, that discourse is done with as well. The idea that the antidote to globalization is the local We need to sort of move past that and really begin to embrace an academic concept, multi-scalar solutions to, to recognize that the local is actually embedded in a conversation with the national, the global, that these are not just simply discrete little entities and that you can just work at one little scale. It is that you need to make both spatial linkages between different parts of the world to affect change, but also to recognize that what you're doing at the sort of so-called local is actually could be national politics. It could be a global politics. And so regionalism perhaps is an emerging site of new forms of political activity, consciousness that is recognizing that there are governance or sovereignty embedded within the nation state that can affect change, both legally, politically, policy, But also culturally and even ethnically and morally
0: yeah i mean the reason i asked this is because the filmmakers have said that they wanted the movie to obviously spur conversations about climate change and what we can do without the film actually providing any answers because in the film the the individual is helpless right Mm -hmm. there I, I think at one point they they start a foundation called Just Look Up, yeah. but there there's no indication whatsoever that they're affecting any change, and mm-hmm. it almost takes on a tone of nihilism, where the the outcome has already been determined. With climate change, that's that's not the case, um, mm-hmm. and it does seem like if I as an activist want to get involved at at a local or regional level, there are things that I could do. It's almost like the film is saying to those who who went to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, what you're doing doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter because that outcome has been decided by people up here. Um, I'm putting my hand above my head. Sorry, I forgot this is audio. And so, yeah, it's one thing that really bothered me about the film is if we're going to have a conversation about climate change, you have to bring it down to what we can do at our Mm -hmm. level and not. What we're doing at a nation state level or the film doesn't even acknowledge the global level i think towards the end they talk about india and china what was the un doing right <laughs> yeah
1: or it was also completely u.s centric and at the end it was like oh but guess what like don't worry china and india are going to try to save the day and then the u.s sabotages it it's like, oh, whatever okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go there's too much too much you know geopolitics involved in that one but I think yeah, your point is uh, important. Is that the film, and this is was one of my other big critiques, is that it is not only nihilistic, it is also misanthropic, in that way. In, in a sense, I think it's sort of like Idiocracy Part Two, or maybe this is at Part Three at this point. I'm not sure how many of those films they've made, which are really fun to laugh at because they just make a mockery of human beings in the postmodern condition, if you will. But but as, as a form of politics, as a form of climate politics, it's both nihilistic and misanthropic because everybody and don't look up is pretty much a moron and, and, and an idiot, right? And maybe that was done intentionally to say there are no sort of like pure people who can save us. But on the other hand, it's really sort of disempowering in the sense because it's not treated with humanism, it's not treated with like, oh, these are flawed humans. Let's explore how they can actually do something despite their flaws. It's more like look at them, let's laugh at them. At the end, nobody comes out looking very good, right? And then at the end, it's actually kind of bothers me because the, the righteous have their last supper and you get to, to say, hey, we were right, right? You know, we were the right ones. At least we died being right. And, you know, uh, thinker Niels Gilman always says, you know, does, does the left want to constantly be right or do they want to win? Right. And it's a distinction. And I think for too many times, the left often wants to be right. Taking it to figure out how to, to win is a lot harder because it also means making choices that are tough or compromising in certain ways. But that so you, you don't have to compromise because, you know, for example, these anti-pipeline protests involve actors along the whole commodity chain. So if you want to like chain yourself up and direct action doing something, you can do that. If you want to lobby you know, Governor Kate Brown to file a motion to block it, you can do that. You know, there are actions that, that people can take in any kind of politics in these kind of battles against fossil fuel commodity chains, but also just in decarbonization, right? Some of them are, I tell my students are really not very sexy, but, you know, working on single family zoning, you know, I listen to your housing podcast, right? There are all sorts of ways you can get involved in that. It doesn't have to be going to meetings. It can be working to support legislation to change in these laws. And so that politics is all missing from the film, right? And that the agency that the film leaves us is is really, there is no agency. And, and why? Because that goes back to that flawed metaphor. This is an extraterrestrial cataclysm. And if we think of climate change as an extraterrestrial cataclysm, then yes, we probably we all going to die, right? In that way.
0: And on that note <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much for, for joining me. This is this has been really great. Uh it's great to talk to you.
1: Well, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. Why there's a change in the weather. There's
0: a change in the sea. Can Hollywood even make a movie that conveys the complexity of climate change? Probably not. For all its absurdity, Don't Look Up has more in common with a movie like Mars Attacks than Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. And for a disaster movie, that's perfectly fine. But if its intention is to spur a conversation about climate change, it fails. I'd like to thank my guest Nick Janos. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Suddler. You can find me on Twitter at at Matt Sedlar, or the podcast at at Sociology Ruins. I wrote the little song at the top of the podcast, but right now you're listening to Ethel Waters sing, There'll Be Some Changes Made, which is a fitting message for the end of this episode. And, bonus, the song is now in the public domain as of January 1st. Join me next month at Sociology Ruins, something completely different. I'm gonna
1: change my way of living. And that ain't no love. Why, I'm thinking about Wait, I gotta suck my stuff.